Well, I'm not so good that I don't need notes. Um, good morning. Um, I guess several of you probably remember um, Jerry Seinfeld, who for several years filled up a weekly half-hour television time slot in a show that was billed as a show about nothing. Well, I'm hoping this morning to fill up one half-hour time slot in a talk about talking. And it's a talk about talking about Wes, but talking about anything, really, and getting into talking about things that might not be so technically advanced, but it might be something that's difficult because it's close to your heart, or maybe it's a hot-button issue. And I have to say, I'm a little nervous giving this because I'm not quite as good at that as I am talking about computing clusters. <laughs> so uh, this is... Uh, this is a talk basically, though, about me talking to you, and I'm not using any multimedia or special effects or even PowerPoint slides. <laughs> I see yays out there, hooray. It's a talk about you talking to other people in your life without even a laptop or an iPhone to help you. Um, just our own eyes and minds and ears and hearts, us talking to each other, chance encounters, deep conversations, and I don't have a lot of theories to offer you, but it's not that kind of a talk anyway. I'm mostly concerned with practical matters and stories from my own life and the lives of people I know. Now, for a lot of us, when we think about getting out there and talking about ethical culture, the first image that comes to mind is this overzealous missionary or a cultural imperialist or even a high-powered sales pitch man and we kind of recoil from that. We decide it might be better just to keep our beliefs to ourselves because, after all, who am I to try and influence somebody else? But um, I'm one of these people that over the last several years, I've kind of watched as, as these outspoken, outspoken right-wingers have taken center stage and declared that their beliefs were the only ones that were available to decent, moral, upstanding people. And then they were countered equally forcefully on the left by strident voices that claimed that all religions were havens for the ignorant and superstitious. And I wanted to say, wait, we have another way. We believe in the human potential for good. We hold ideals, but we don't require a supernatural being to help us achieve these ideals. We offer a community to people who don't feel at home in other religions and we offer a moral compass that's based on the quality of our relations with each other. And uh, our people here at West, myself included, we got a few letters to the editor printed in the newspaper, but we really weren't willing to shout or bully our way into the public arena. And so we were just sort of a quiet, small voice on the sidelines. Well, as of last November, Yes, there's, there's another quiet, small voice from the sidelines. I have great hopes for you, Marcella. Or, nope, James, James too. Um, but anyway, things have changed a little since last November, but we're still here, and we still think we have something relevant to offer, but we're still a little up in the air on how we let people know. So here come the stories. Well, many of you know that I grew up in southeastern New Mexico, in a medium-sized town where Christianity was the only game in town. And whenever you met somebody new, one of the first questions that you would ask them is, what church do you go to? 
And I came of age during the Christian Renewal Movement in the 1970s, and they were very big on getting people to kindle the personal passion that would allow the light of Christ to shine forth in their lives. And this boundless enthusiasm was supposed to come naturally if you had really dedicated your life to Christ. I mean, the desire to share your light would be as natural and as irrepressible as the desire to breathe. Or so they said. And I should have fit right into that community because my grandfather was a Methodist minister and my parents were mainstays in their church. I went to Sunday school, I sang in the children's choir, and I did all the right things. But somehow that unbridled joy just didn't well up in me quite as naturally as it was supposed to. And I thought that something was wrong with me. Because no matter how hard I tried, that special feeling never really took hold in me. And I was reluctant to witness to other people because I couldn't quite immerse myself in the script enough to recite the lines convincingly. And it didn't occur to me until much later in my life that not only was I trying out for the wrong part, I was in the wrong theater. Yeah, a lot of you understand that feeling. Uh, if somebody had come up to me back then, however, and told me that I belonged in a humanist community, I wouldn't have been able to process the thought because the idea of leaving the only faith that I'd ever known would have been incomprehensible to me. But whether we felt like it or not back then, we were told to go out to others and persuade them to join us. And it never struck me as odd back then because everybody else I knew accepted that idea. That's just the way you did things. And the Bible even said to go out into all the world and preach the gospel to the unconverted. And we didn't know a whole lot about who those unconverted people were. And a lot of us assumed there really wasn't all that much to know because if you went by what the Bible said, you'd go out there, you'd preach the word, people would see the error of their ways, and they would happily change their entire lives at a moment's notice. Okay. Well, it's against this backdrop that uh, my cousin and his wife decided to go on a missionary trip to Kenya. And when they talked about it, they talked about all their months of preparation and gathering up their school supplies and the toys and books and boxes and boxes of Bibles. And they talked about the fees and the paperwork and the government requirements. And they were really excited about preaching the gospel to these faraway people and offering them a chance of salvation. But in all that talking, it may be just my memory, but I don't remember any mention of language lessons or of studying the culture and the religion and the history of the people that they were going out to visit. Well, they got their supplies together and they went overseas and then they sent letters back to us and they talked about the warm welcome and learning to eat bush meat without questioning what it was exactly and setting up their school and the bureaucratic hurdles that they had to clear. And then after only a few months, they were back home again because they were out of funds. Uh, see, they had underestimated the need for the um, money that they would need for the fees and the gifts and all the palms that they had degrees to get anything done. And their Kenyan host thanked them very kindly for the generous donation of toys and school supplies but they insisted that they take their Bibles back home with them. You see, these folks had seen a lot of missionaries come and go, and they had no intention of adopting this foreign religion, but they were very glad for their donations. And what just happened here, um, the approach that my cousin and his wife had taken was that of a sales pitch. 
And the intended customers accepted the free samples, but they didn't buy the product. Now, this type of sales pitch relies pretty much completely on the passionate enthusiasm of the person making the pitch rather than the needs and the interests of the audience. On the other hand, sometimes it's the audience that wants the passionate sales pitch. Um, a former boss of mine really wanted the people in his group to pitch new ideas to him with all the passion and the conviction that we could muster up. And he gauged the value of an idea by how fiercely we were willing to fight for it. Even if we were wrong, we were supposed to get in there, pitch, pitch, pitch. There was no room for uncertainty or asking for additional input. And I never really mastered that style, and I didn't stay in that job for very long because clearly not all of us are cut out to be salespeople. Well, going back to my growing up years in the church, I remember that those of us who weren't especially keen on active outreach were encouraged to just live our lives in such a way that the light of Christ would shine through us. And the idea was that our friends and neighbors would be so impressed by our shining presence that they would ask us what gave us such joy and peace, and then we could tell them, and they would invite Christ into their lives, and then they would be happy too. Well, most of the people I encountered every day back then were already at least nominally Christian, and they were all busy trying to shine just as much as I was. And I wasn't an especially shiny person to begin with, so I didn't get many takers. But ironically, several years after I became a humanist, one of my coworkers at the office commented that the light of Christ was shining through me. Okay? Well, I was obviously having a pretty good day that day, and I must have been smiling. And he obviously meant his comment as a compliment, so I thanked him. And I explained that I was a humanist, and he asked me what that meant. And I told him that I believed that um, people had the potential for great good, and that I just believed in being the best person that I could be. And he was kind of taken aback by that. And he muttered something about having a nice day, and then he went on about his business, because presumably he realized that a government agency wasn't any place to get into a religious debate. And I was surprised, too, because even here in Washington, D.C., there are people who believe that their game is the only game in town. Well, I'll tell you another story about another missionary. They seem to run in my family, but this is another missionary cousin of mine. And she's got uh, a handle on this light-shining business a little better than I do. Um, you see, for many years, she lived in Somaliland which at the time was the relatively stable northern region of Somalia in northeastern Africa. And she and her colleagues ran an orphanage and a school. And they taught reading and sewing and practical skills. And this, uh, this little territory was a former British protectorate, so English was commonly spoken there. But as they lived with the people in the towns, they learned the Somali language. They picked it up as soon as they could. They kept their Bibles and their crosses to themselves because this was a very devoutly Muslim country, and they preferred to let their actions speak for them. They didn't hide the fact they were Christians, but they, um, they held their religious observances in the privacy of their homes. And they remained in Somalia for many years until the political situation got too violent and they had to leave. And when this cousin of mine sent letters home, she spoke about individual people with faces and names, and her affection for them just shone through in these letters. And even after she left Somalia, 
She worked with refugees in Toronto and later in the Northern African Republic of Djibouti. And she's since moved on to other work, but Africa is her permanent home. Well, different approaches get you different results, obviously. And very few of us would be willing to pull up stakes and spend the rest of our lives preaching the words of Felix Adler to people halfway around the world. But on the other hand, we don't want West to be the best-kept secret in our own town. And so, as we often do, we look for a middle way. So here are a few of the ways that we've used to get the word out about Wes, besides the, uh, the town crier <laughs> approach, which works. We've got the billboard method, which also includes ads, websites, bumper stickers, and that's where you put the message out there, but you're not around to take any feedback or questions. And there are benefits to this. Um, you reach people that you might not have thought to contact, and you reach people that you didn't even know existed. And the message is out there all the time. You don't need to be there for it. And uh, actually, the West website is one of the major ways that people find out that we exist. So it's, it's a useful thing. It works well for people who know more or less what they're looking for, and they're already interested. So it's kind of a self-selecting group that you reach. But the drawbacks are you don't know who you're reaching and what their reaction is to your message. So wading in just slightly deeper, a little more involvement, you've got the drive-by or the parachute drop. And that could be a, pro a protest march or a press conference or an exhibit table at a fair or a festival. That's where you come in, you deliver your message, maybe take some question and answers, and then you leave again. And the result you get from this kind of depends on if your audience is already interested in what you have to say, if they're receptive, are they hostile, are they on the fence? How well do you know what they're going to be in advance, what your audience is? Uh, what venue are you doing this in? And how many other people are out there pitching their messages? For example, at the Tacoma Park Folk Festival, um, Wes had an exhibit table one year that was right next to an exhibit where a guy was teaching people how to blow a shofar. And so we were trying to talk to people, and here they were blowing on this ram's horn, and we had to kind of shout our message. <laughs> so you do have to watch out for those things. Um, and it also depends, are you addressing one specific issue, or are you just putting out the word, hey, we're here, we exist? And both of those are useful. Well, speaking of the Tacoma Park Folk Festival, there is some opportunity to do a little more in-depth, one-on-one conversation because you run into people you know from work or from your neighborhood or people you've never met before. And they'll stop by the exhibit table and they'll chat for a while. And you can have an exchange of ideas. It's usually just a few minutes. And you might or might not ever see these people again. But uh, this is also the kind of conversation you have with people in your office or your neighbors uh, when they ask you, what'd you do over the weekend? Or what's this event that I see at Wes? You know, where is that? What is the Washington Ethical Society anyway? And actually, we found out from what feedback we've gotten that word of mouth is actually the best way of getting people to come here and visit us. So, you know, even if it's just a casual conversation, you're having an effect. Well, if the situation's right for waiting in a little deeper, you can have an extended conversation. And this might span over a period of time. And you can explain your beliefs. You can listen to another person's beliefs. You can find common ground. You can show a willingness to be influenced. 
this is when you're really getting into it with somebody you know or somebody who's really interested. Well, there's so many approaches. Which one should I use? And it all depends, doesn't it? When I work on a communications project at my job, I have two favorite questions, and people get tired of hearing me ask. But my questions are, who cares and so what? <laughs> so let's start off with the who cares bit. Well, maybe I care. I want you to know that I'm here, or I want you to know what I think. Maybe I want to spend some time with you, or go to an event with you. Like I could invite you to the Follies, right? Maybe I'd like to help you. Or maybe I want you to help me or support my cause. Or maybe I just want you to stop doing something or start doing something. Maybe you're the one who cares. You've asked me for information. Where can I find a good Sunday school for my kids? Or what's Wes? Or maybe you want to tell me what you think. Or you want to share an event with me or share an experience. Maybe you've asked for or offered help. Maybe you want me to support your cause. Or maybe you want me to stop doing something or start doing something. Well, maybe we both care, but I know my way is right. So I could use the do it my way or else approach. Um, yeah, depends on the situation. Or I could just assume that my way is better. Well, better for whom? Or maybe my way is going to get me something. But have I accounted for the effects that I'm having on you? Have I thought about how my ideas fit in with your framework of thoughts and beliefs? And am I going to have to stay around and live with the consequences of what I'm asking you to do? That's a big one right there. Those 19th century missionaries that went to the tropical countries and got the natives to put on these wool clothing and plow up their ground and plant crops, that didn't work out so well, but the missionaries could go home. So you know, you're going to have an effect if you influence somebody to do something. So am I assuming that my worldview is universally accepted? And how much do I know about your worldview? And before we get too smug about this, because we do tend to think of ourselves as open-minded and tolerant people, but let's look at ourselves. Because we sometimes tend to assume that everyone would prefer reason-based religion if only they were well enough informed. Maybe we assume that everyone who really matters places a high value on objective facts and tolerance for all and the potential of people to achieve a higher good. And we point out how unreasonable and how unsuccessful the other guys are. And then we sit back and wait for the new members to come rolling in. But other people may place their highest priority on loyalty to religious or cultural groups or belief in holding firm to their faith. Or maybe they mistrust what they see as the amorality of secularism. Well, the short story writer Flannery O'Connor, and um, she was a devout Roman Catholic, she put it this way, the novelist with Christian concerns will find in modern life distortions which are repugnant to him, and his problem will be to make these appear as distortions to an audience which is used to seeing them as natural. And I would say that it's not just Christians that have this problem. I think all of us do to some extent. If you remember, it wasn't that long ago that uh, a lot of people thought that having a Hummer and a McMansion was just a natural reward for their success. There wasn't anything wrong with it. And if we wanted to convince them that this was unsustainable for the environment and it really wasn't such a good thing, we had to kind of get them out of their comfort zone. 
So I think all of us have this challenge of reaching a person where they are. Now, it's not too much of a stretch to assume that the other person is rational and well adapted to their environment, and you want to understand how they reach their point of view. You want to influence them, but be willing to be influenced, because that's how you wind up with more information at your disposal or a more nuanced understanding. Or you may even have some misperceptions corrected. And even if you don't agree with the other person, at least you see where he or she is coming from, why she thinks the way she does, or where you might start looking for common ground. So who cares? Ideally, we both care, and it's a two-way engagement. So what language are you speaking in? Are you using the language of storytelling and metaphor? Are you using science and logic? Are you speaking from the heart or the head, tradition, past experiences? Are you on the defensive? Are you certain that you're right? Have you always been surrounded by like-minded people and you assume that other people think like you do? What are your assumptions? Are there areas where we disagree? Can we find some common ground? Are you doing me a favor by listening to me? And if so, I need to meet you more than halfway. I need to use your language, address your concerns, show you how you might benefit. If I'm telling you something that's hard for you to hear, I should allow you time to absorb it. And I shouldn't dump on you more than you can process at any one time. And if necessary, I need to have the patience to extend the dialogue over the long term. So did you ask me for my opinion? And how much detail do you want? Do you really want my opinion, or were you just being polite? How receptive will you be if I disagree with you? And how well do we know and trust each other? So moving on to the so what. Well, the so what might be that you got the information you came for, and, and that's quite enough, and then the ball's in your court now. Maybe. Or maybe you have a different insight that you want to put into the conversation so that we can make a more informed decision or so that we're less resistant to each other's point of view or so that we can be candid about what it is we really want. Maybe you're intrigued. You want to know me better personally or you want to know more about my point of view or the community that I share with all of you. Maybe you're motivated. Maybe our interaction has shown you the importance of making a change or of preserving something against a change. Or maybe you want to take an active role in some sort of community or some sort of cause that I support. Well, it's fairly safe to assume that most of the people we encounter are motivated by purposes other than insanity or evil. Yeah, go with me on this. <laughs> we can understand their motives, even if we don't agree with them. They might be acting rationally or following tradition or clan loyalty, or maybe they're just making decisions based on inertia, or maybe they're acting out of greed or fear or anger. But even when people are acting in ways that they perceive as rational or good, their actions might seem undesirable to us because we're dealing with a different set of assumptions. For example, if you were raised in a free-thinking community, the thought of going out and encouraging other people to adopt your point of view might seem pushy or intrusive. But on the other hand, if you were raised to believe that going out and converting people was the equivalent 
of telling people to evacuate a burning building than if you didn't go out there and reach out to them, you would be complicit in their downfall. Well, it's, uh, it's really easy to just avoid people that think very differently than we do on the assumption that we won't ever understand them and trying to bring them around to our point of view is useless. But if we don't make that contact, we risk becoming provincial and narrow-minded and even living in a cosmopolitan area like this. We lose the opportunity to refine and develop our point of view and our view of the world by challenging our assumptions and exposing ourselves to other perspectives. And we lose touch with the reality that is our big, complex, messy world. So if we're going to take seriously this business of attributing worth to every person, like Felix Adler encouraged us to do, then we must assume that every person has something worthwhile to teach us. We can only really learn from other people if we hear them speaking on their own terms. Well, I'm not very good at this, but I have made some imperfect first steps. Um, a couple of years ago, there was a little candlelight vigil on the west side of the Capitol building, and we stood and we lit candles and we read out the hometowns of the American military people who had died in the Iraqi war. And there was a small group of counter-protesters standing off to one side. They were dressed all in red, white, and blue, and they had a sign that said, freedom isn't free. So after our candlelight uh, remembrance, I decided to try something that's very daring for me. I was going to go over there and talk to them, or listen, more like it. And I was going to ask them how it was that they saw the world. What was it that they supported about this effort overseas? And I was going to make a promise to myself that I wasn't going to judge, I was go wasn't going to tell them how to think, but I was going to find out what is your point of view. So I went over there, and there was, there was a man that he was obviously sort of a spokesperson for the group, and I asked him, you know, what, how do you see this whole thing? And he had come equipped, he'd done his homework, he had facts and arguments to throw at me, and I, I persisted. I said, no, look, I don't want to argue with you. I just want to hear what you have to say. And it took several minutes, but things were beginning to soften up, to loosen up a little bit. We were almost on the brink of having a real conversation. And then some guy from the Candlelight Memorial came by on his bike and started flinging insults at this little group of people and just yelling and screaming and he didn't even ask what it was that we were talking about because he assumed that um, he already knew. And so the conversation was over, and the pro-war guy went back to hurling his facts and his arguments at the guy on the bicycle. And it was obviously back into their comfort zone. This is what they had come prepared to do. And so that was the end of that little experiment. But I'm not sorry I tried it, and I might try it again sometime because I was trying out something that I had learned from a couple of other people who've spoken here at Wes and people that I hold up as my heroes. Because these people are masters of bringing people together in emotionally loaded situations. You may remember Greg Barton. He was a member here for a while, and uh, he was a negotiator. And he would do labor management negotiations and corporate contract negotiations. And he routinely dealt with towering egos and high monetary stakes. 
and professional negotiators who were being paid large sums of money to come in and give as little as possible and get as much as possible. And these people were in it to win. But they also needed to come out of it with everybody's signatures on a legally binding contract. So Greg's key piece of strategy was, first, you listen. Even if you're sure that the other side is wrong, and even if what they're saying is distasteful to you, first, you listen. You don't have to agree. Just the act of listening and acknowledging their statement takes the edge off. It calms things down. It makes the other person more receptive to what you have to say. You may have to grit your teeth and clench your fists the whole time, but you have to really listen. And when it's your turn, you state your case in terms of rational and philosophical background for your point of view, how the issue looks from where you stand, no judgment, pro or con, on the other person's point of view, and ideally, they're listening in return. And you go on from there. Now, I heard this first you listen approach from another speaker at WES, and again, you may remember Daryl Davis. Yeah, very impressive guy. He's a professional musician and quite a good one at that, but his avocation is reaching out to the members of the Ku Klux Klan. Now, that would be a bold step for anybody, but for Daryl, it's absolutely mind-blowing because Daryl, you see, is a very dark-skinned black man. And what he does, and I have skipped a page in my notes, here we go. Um, what he does is he arranges to meet individual members of the KKK on neutral turf, and then he asks them why they think the way they do. He asks them, why do you hate me? And when you put it in one-on-one -on -one terms like that, it's hard to come back with a stock answer. Well, if it looks like it's going well and he strikes up a conversation, the next thing he does is he invites these KKK people to a cookout at his place. And he gets them to see him as a person, but in a safe environment, in a large group of people, in a friendly setting. He gets them to see him as an individual and to know his family and friends. Now, this doesn't always work. He was actually punched out one time by one of these guys and injured quite badly, and he had to press charges against the guy, and he wound up being convicted. The guy that punched him out was convicted and sentenced to a jail term. And the jail was quite a drive away from, from the man's family. They didn't have a car, so they couldn't go out and visit him. So on one occasion, Daryl offered to give this family a ride out to the uh, jail where this man was, this prison, and he sat out in the parking lot and waited while they had their visit, and then he brought them home. And he's gotten some results, believe it or not. Um, he's, what he does is he, he shows as well as tells. And he's cited several instances and even gone on television um, with these former Ku Klux Klan members. In fact, he brings a duffel bag with him to his talks, and at some point during the talk, he always opens up this duffel bag and brings out this KKK robe with the pointy hood. There's some guy that gave it to him. He said, I'm leaving the organization. I don't want this anymore. You can take it. And in fact, he was actually on a television show. He showed us a clip on one of his talks. Um, one of these former KKK members was talking about how he'd changed his mind and his children had changed their minds too. And the camera pans back to show you this man's brand new son-in-law, who was an African-American man. So it works. 
Well, I might not be as assertive as Daryl or as experienced as Greg, but I can reach out to others in my own way. And there are a few basic questions I can use to get things started. So how do you see this issue? How were you brought up? What did your family and community teach you? And are you satisfied with that? What do you want? What do you need? Is there something in particular that works or doesn't work for you? Is there something that you wish were better? How can I help? Here's what I have to offer. Will that help? Should I send something to you? Should I come over to you? Or should I just be a good listener while you work things out for yourself? Should I engage you in a debate? What ideas of yours can I take home with me? And what can you tell me that might change my point of view? Ideally, both sides are giving and receiving. It's a network, not a hierarchy. So are you listening too? We can have a dialogue when we set the lecture aside. We can understand without necessarily agreeing. We can find common ground, and we can influence and inform each other with the purpose of eliciting the best in others and thereby in ourselves. Thank you.